Hello and welcome. I'm Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. And today we've got some leaders in knowledge of those traditional foods, herbs, and medicines that the native inhabitants of the Pacific Northwest counted on to keep them healthy. We welcome today Valerie Seagrest, a nutritionist and educator, and Roma Jean Thomas, a community herbalist. Then they are from the Muckleshoot Tribe, and they also work with the Center for World Indigenous Studies and the Northwest Native Herbal Foundation. There's a whole lot of stuff to talk about this morning and long titles in what you guys do, but really welcome. Thanks for being here, Valerie and Roma Jean. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's really an honor. Well, I'm glad you're here. Uh, there's a cool, you know, things about our culture that we just don't know, and I try and bring that out with the show. We're we all live in this great place, the Northwest, but there's a lot of things about it we just don't stop and take uh, account of. And the Native people uh, have been here for thousands of years, and we just sort of discount all that stuff they may have learned. And hopefully you're going to reteach <laughs> not only uh, the local tribes in the area, but you're teaching everybody uh, who cares to listen a-, a lot of good things that maybe have been lost in generations. Is that kind of what you do, Valerie? Absolutely. And the journey back to those uh, traditions are part of our healing process, too, as well. So um, being able to be seen on the land and, you know, and helping people to understand that when we lose uh, berry patches because another power line goes up, that those are invisible losses to people who are still very much a part of a living culture here in the Pacific Northwest. So um, it's it's a lot of fun to hold that space for land and recovery and um, helping to rekindle and revitalize traditional health systems in a modern context. In a modern context, that's good because there, I'll just talk about the headlines across the country is like the Affordable Care Act and uh, people being able to take care of themselves. So health issues are on people's, uh, it's right in front of us all the time. And you're talking about traditional ways that we may have lost track of and I guess maybe uh, the Center for World Indigenous Studies sort of has got a, I don't know, you guys get grants and, and ways to say, oh, here's what we should be learning and relearning and teaching. You guys do this through, like, seminars, uh, workshops. How do you go about your work to, to, as you talk to local tribes about some of the things you've learned? And then I, then I kind of want to go backwards with a few other questions, too. I think um, I stumbled upon this because I was worried about my health. I'm a type 1 diabetic, and I thought, so traditionally my people weren't diabetics. Like, how did they manage that? And things like huckleberry came into my life um, in in a totally different way. I always loved a huckleberry as a kid, but the fact that it actually is a natural blood sugar reducer, that it was something that um, my people ate, knowing that it would protect us from those kinds of things. And so I think... This is a community education project. When I stumbled upon some of these classes, I thought, I am going to help heal myself and realize that there are people out there that also want that knowledge. And so I always encourage someone, when you learn something, teach it. Take it out into the world and do it. And to see nettles and dandelions and now to see them in the context of medicine, it really brings into perspective that these are lost traditions. They're here, they're growing, they're living, and they're fighting um, through the power lines and, and all of these kinds of modern things, but they're still really prevalent and pop up every single day. It was always right in front of my face. Yeah, and we're really talking about, you know, uh, 10,000 years of 
at least that we know of. I mean, if you talk to any Muckleshoot or Coast Salish person, they'll say since time began, um, us being able to thrive on a landscape and um, live life free of heart disease, cancer, and diabetes, which are the top three causes of death in Indian country and the broader country and the globe. Um, So what we're really looking at is what were people doing, uh, you know, 150 years ago, not that long ago, that was really upholding health? And how can we validate that traditional ecological knowledge and indigenous native science um, and marry that with a modern science and say, you know, like Roma Jean was saying, huckleberries balance blood sugar. Um, traditionally, we would say that huckleberries carried the blood of the earth. And those, what are those parallels and what are those um, instigations in that, um, that teaching? How do we pull that out and making, make that meaningful as we reclaim our health? And that, that process is really empowering for people to, to be able to reclaim their health. The Affordable Care Act to me is uh, it's sort of like a kick in the butt, right? Like we need to, all of the things that uh, plague our nation today, all of the disparities and epidemics that we see are completely preventable. And that's part of us not just eating a more nourished diet, but being more active on the landscape and being citizens. And what are the civics lessons involved in food and equity and medicine that, um, our ancestors and people from as the early 1900s were practicing here in our country. You know, it seems like we we knew those things, or at least if we look at the history, I don't know, we can't really, unless people really wrote stuff down why they did stuff, it just seemed instinctual and natural for generations past to know how to take care of themselves uh, physically, I'm talking about. the mm-hmm. and, and now, you're right, I mean, the Affordable Care Act, I'll one of the big parts of it was that you will, if you have health insurance, you will go before you're sick and learn how to take care of yourself. Go for your annual checkups and find out how to take care of yourself. But just the example of the huckleberry, now with science, they can d- take it apart, you know, and look at it molecularly, or I don't know what those guys do, uh, and say, here's the properties it has, and here's why it does that. But for some reason, over years and years of trying this and trying that, I guess, is how the Native folks knew that a long time ago. Yeah, and I think intuitively we as people in general know these kinds of things, and I think sometimes we get so far forward and we have to see a doctor and we have to get a prescription, but I think we know when we don't feel well and our diet is the root of that, and it's not only what we're eating, but our connection to where the food is coming from. I started to get so frustrated going to the store and buying something and having no idea what was in it, having to Google half of the ingredients, when Whole Foods are healing, so I could go, I can identify a huckleberry, I can eat it, and I know what it's doing for my body. I don't know what this medicine is or how it was made or who touched it, but there are things out in the environment, and I just walked past them, ignored them, didn't understand their purpose. We lost that connection, but that reconnection has been really profound. And as a type 1 diabetic, I feel like I've been able to manage my own health better and I, when I went to the doctor for diabetes, they threw out words I didn't understand. I felt overwhelmed. I was completely panicked. But finding this project and reclaiming some of my food history and some of my innate food knowledge from my people has helped me to ease a lot of that anxiety. Now I can take control and let it, instead of being told what my diagnosis is, I can help manage that. 
I can be a part of that conversation. And I think that's a lot of what we want to do. And so you like to do this on not just at the Muckleshoot tribe, but a lot of the Coast Salish tribes in the area, right? And teach this knowledge and spread it out. Uh, and you, uh, Roman Jean, you went through the Northwest Native Herbal Foundations like apprenticeship, right? And yes. took these classes. So tell us about the, I don't know, the foundation or how this, uh, or how you're organized, et cetera, just a little, for a little basics for the folks, and then we'll get into a few other things. How, how is this sort of structured, the, the little groups you work for, and how you disseminate this? Sure. I um, noticed about four years ago, four or five years ago, that there is this new sort of rise in Western herbal medicine and the way it's taught. Uh, I went to school at Bastyr University, and there's an herbal uh, medicine program where you can actually get a degree in herbal sciences. And then there were apprenticeships that were going on all over the nation, really. Um, But none of them had a focus on Native people or native plants. And so this is really the first of its kind. Uh, We launched it last March, and it was sort of a battle because um, in tribal communities, uh, for very good reason, our intellectual property around uh, plant medicine has been underground and has been taught as... um, sort of like a secret knowledge or a secret society situation. Mm. And there are aspects of the curriculum that um, are tailored specifically to tribal communities. I've taken on 15 Muckleshoot tribal members and 10 Tulalip tribal members all last year. And um, we really walk them through cardiovascular system and the plants that are available at that time and the epidemics that we're seeing with heart disease and help... um, help them to identify places within our traditional accustomed harvesting grounds to go out and collect those medicines or botanize about them. And um, it's, you know, the people that have come to the class actually already have some family history that carry, you know, certain families carry certain medicines in our community, and that's how it's sort of been organized historically. Um, But what we're really working with is the realm of information that actually can be shared then there's this sort of realm that's um, just relationships between people and plants that just like your good friend, you would not go around, you know, telling their deepest secrets. And so we, I try to hold that space for people and cultivate, you know, that message from our heart to the heart of the plant and how to occupy that space and allow that plant to um, to really open its space up, it, its, uh, in, its spirit to you. Mm. And that that's something private that you probably wouldn't share with anybody. Um, but that there are levels of knowledge that can be shared with community or with family members. And that's where we sort of operate in that area, but also helping to sort of open those doors and activate people to go out and cultivate a, a stronger relationship with plants. And I think the classroom, as a teacher, I think the classroom environment allows people, I always tell people when they're in any of our classes, you have gifts. You have gifts that you can bring to this table. I'm learning things from you. And sometimes people just need to hear that. So being in an academic classroom saying, I am validating your knowledge. You have a certificate and now you can go out and teach has really helped people to understand that they have gifts and to be willing to share them, to give them a platform to go out and teach other people. When the reality is they've been healing people most of their lives. They grew up healing people. They learned from healers, all the amazing healers in their family. But to validate that in an academic classroom 
is such an honor and a privilege. So we're reclaiming our history, and I think we're moving into the future in a current context in a classroom environment. We're blending, and that has been such a phenomenal learning opportunity, and it's really excelling people to say, this is so valid and valuable, and I've always carried it, and now I can share it. So you might go to a tribe uh, and say, and offer up, hey, through the whatever social networks they have there, be it the community center or the local newspaper or just word of mouth, hey, there's a new program. We're teaching more about the traditional ways. And do you try and marry the past culture and traditional ways with new technology and science? Is there a new way to grab people and present that? What you're talking about, the the, the things we've kept underground? and I mean, how does that, how is that up? approach or or is that the approach you use and how's that grasped by the the perspective people who want to learn absolutely the approach really is about recovering uh our relationship with not just the land but one another uh if you ask any coast salish person uh, muckleshoot or port gamble or suquamish or swinomish that we're all related and that it was a key part of maintaining the social fabric of our food and medicine systems. And then because of the history of what has happened on this land, you know, between the time of 1770 and 1830, our population decreased by 80%. Wow. And with that came, you know, it, it was because of a series of epidemics that hit the land here before pioneers even got here. Um, influenza smallpox, malaria, all of those things came in waves and hit our longhouses uh, from the Columbia River all the way up into Canada, and that wiped out a large amount of our population. And it was like burning libraries, right? Like completely decimating complete generations of knowledge that was held by people who were wiped out in the matter of days. Right. And then those longhouses were set on fire. And so this sort of history was lost and uh, a large disruption happened. And then we have treaty times, which um, our ancestors had the wonderful foresight of writing the most powerful piece of environmental legislation that we have in this state on how to how we're going to live on this land together and that our first priority is access to our foods and medicines because we know that when people no longer have access to those things or no longer are are eating elk or salmon or drinking nettle tea that we as a people lose our identity that our identity is uh, inextricably intertwined with the foods and medicines that we have consumed since time began and when we can reach out to other tribal communities and and rekindle those relationships and help us to remember that we weren't always on reservations. We were longhouse-based nomadic uh, families that had special intermarriages and ties so that we would have access to special foods and medicines on this land. When we can help us all to remember that, then um, we stand in solidarity and have an opportunity to say, you know, tribes have a lot of... uh, a lot to offer when we're looking at how to rebuild the health of this country, really, by just looking at um, some of the impacts that have come to us historically and what it's going to take to really heal historical trauma, which is 
something that is a wound on the spirit of a community and absolutely requires spiritual recovery. And our foods and medicines help us do that. They help us remember who we are and where we come from. Wow, well, that's, that's great. I love the way you said all that. Uh, we are talking this morning with Valerie Seagress. She is a faculty member of the Center for World Indigenous Studies. Is that correct enough? Yep. An educator in herbal medicine in the native uh, Northwest tribals. Uh, oh boy, see this. I'm so uneducated. The Coast Salish people, I mean, that needs a definition, too. I mean, for people listening, I can't really wrap my head around what they're talking about. Let me finish who I'm talking to, and Roma Jean Thomas. She is also with us today, a member of the Muckleshoot Tribe and a, uh, I guess you would say, a community herbalist, right? Yes. All right. And how about that? I'll, I'll, I'll take a step back. Coast Salish people, I mean... Define that for our listeners, because that's something we don't stop and think about. That you, you said we're all kind of related from, well, Coast Salish does all go all the way, all the, to Northern California, doesn't traditionally or not? Uh, maybe I'm wrong with my. I don't. I'm not sure. I I want to say it does. It, it kind of makes sense with the food systems that are in Northern California. They have um, salmon like we do, and they had prairies. We had uh, camas prairies that you would walk. You could walk through the Camas Prairies from ca- Canada to Northern California, and nowadays we call it the I-5 yeah. corridor. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that was that was our Camas Prairie. But, uh, people here, at least in the Puget Sound area, think of all the tribes that uh, they can think of that are, you know, at least somewhat well-known. That's what you mean, Coast Salish, and it is all those small little tribes now that are on reservations that call the way up the... I don't know, the the islands, uh, the coastal islands in Canada, they're all the way down, at least the Columbia, if not further, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, there are exceptions. <coughs> I want to say, like, Macaw and um, Sklalem are from more Canada um, ocean area, but have been relocated. And um, Macaw has a really special relationship with uh, more northern tribes from Canada. So um, not to overgeneralize, I want to honor that they have a different... Um, okay, so see, there. I've got it wrong. So I will encourage folks listening, look it up online yourself, <laughs> Coast <laughs> Salish people. Okay, so let me, you talked just a minute ago, Valerie, about uh, the access. So how about these days, the access? What kind of access is there these days uh, to those traditional, healthy, local foods that were native that, I mean, if you want to go back to those days, people have to have access to them. Is it still, you mentioned, you, you said elk. Uh, you, it's not easy to find an elk walking down the, the street here anymore. Uh, yeah. Talk elk us through actually, that and, and, and how that is kind of one of the biggest hurdles maybe. Absolutely. I mean, access for sure. Yeah. Access is a major issue. It's the reason why I'm not a nutritionist that sits behind a desk and talks about portion control and eating more protein and all of those things because I realize and recognize I'm talking to a population that has major challenges and barriers in accessing their traditional foods. Yeah, that you don't was, just write diet books. That's n- not the kind of nutritionist <laughs> you are. No, we try to really recover the f- the food system that's been here, and that involves, like Roma Jean was saying, a community education process. Um, in the, a program. The reclaiming of the stewardship. We had a relationship to the land and we we understood that it fed us and therefore we would thin out the huckleberries and we would be water protectors and things that um, because of boundaries and barriers and um, those types of things um, we're not doing in the same way that we once did. And so we we also losing some of our history and some of our 
culture and traditions, we've lost the ability to know where to harvest things, how to cook them, how to prepare them. Salmon, I think, is a staple. But through this certificate program, I had this really phenomenal... When I was a kid, my family used to go smelting. I had no idea the connection to my brain power, to DHA, how important smelt are in my diet. Something we did when we were a kid, not something we've done. Recently, I think um, smelt populations weren't running as thick as they did when I was a child. They're starting to, um, I think, get better. But so for probably 15 years, we haven't been smelting. I didn't realize what I was losing um, in my health because we weren't smelting anymore. And so now I am thinking, who in my family or my mom's tribe still smelts? Where's my smelt connection? Um, I don't. I haven't been harvesting for camas like Val has. So where's my camas connection? So I'm a berry picker. Who am I going to trade with? So I. They have their berries, and I have my smelt. You know those kinds of connections as far as not only reclaiming the knowledge of of what we need in our body, what we traditionally ate, how it sustained our health, but where do we get it now? I have a brother that does halibut for my mom's tribe. I reside in Southern King County on the Muckleshoot Reservation. He resides in Kitsap County on the Scalallum Reservation, and I can't go there and harvest, so I rely on my brother to provide my halibut, which provides so much for my, not only is it delicious, of course, um, and very expensive in the store, but it provides so much for my health, and he's, he's the person that I get it from. And there is this, like, you know, urban development that's happened uh, where just like Romagina is saying, like this really special relationship she has with her family and what they carry and what they have to offer in the community. And now imagine you are, live on the village of the Black River in the early 1900s. And um, I think it's like 1910, the Army Corps of Engineers blasts open the Ballard Locks and within hours the Black River dries up. And you no longer uh, have access because it does not exist to the, that special species of salmon that's there to the only river that flowed two different directions um, in our area that was a really special place, and now it's a dried-up riverbed. What does that say to your self-worth and your identity and this major um, barrier that's now been put in front of you? How do you access those things, and uh, how, are you, how did that really affect your wealth and, and a different way of looking at economics in an economic system? Um, that's really what we're trying to help people inspect and then find new platforms to be able to share their gift and knowledge with the community. How can uh, people who are intrigued after listening to you get in touch with you and find out more about what you're doing and maybe spread the word to, uh, about what, they've, what you've learned? We have uh, a Facebook page, the Muckleshoot Food Sovereignty Project Facebook page. Um, and Roma Jean Thomas and I are both on Facebook, so you can find us there. And you can so, yeah, Valerie Segrest, S-E-G-R-E-S-T, right, mm-hmm. on Facebook. Roma Jean Thomas, Roma Jean, what a beautiful name, R-O-M-A-J-E-A-N, Thomas, spelled the typical way. Roma Jean Thomas and Valerie Segrest, both on Facebook. It's food Sovereignty Program, tell me about that. Well, um... I got involved with the Food Sovereignty Project because I was looking to better my health and 
in a really simplified way, food sovereignty is the ability for you to know what you're putting in your body. <laughs> you yeah. know? Oh, that makes perfect sense now. I mean, and so for us in Muggleshoot, we identified with certain things. I have a really profound relationship with nettles that I didn't have before, except for when I was a child and they were stinging me and I was getting <laughs> slathered with calamine. <laughs> now I see it as a medicine and a food and something I'm really excited to go out and harvest in spring or different times of the year, depending on climate change and the seasons. But you know, that is something now I connect with in a completely different way. And that is what I see the Muckleshoot Food Sovereignty Project being about. Education, connecting with things. I've began to garden and do some traditional cooking methods. Um, but I'm just really learning about my health. And that has in turn benefited my family and community. I think that we have a tendency of, you know, our healthcare system when you are diagnosed with something as um, devastating as diabetes or heart disease or cancer, that the doctor just sort of comes in and drops it on you and then, f you know, flutters away to <laughs> next Hand appointment. I mean, that's, that's yeah. sort of, I see this time and time again in my community on a daily basis almost. People are coming up to me and saying, I was just diagnosed with diabetes and I have absolutely no legs to stand on and I don't know what I'm doing. And the very first thing that we talk about is hope and opportunity that maybe this has come to you in a time when we really need to make our sickness our agenda mm. because that's what the healthcare industry does they have made sickness a business and we have an ability to um, stand by and let that happen or we can be become citizens in a healing process and just like Romagine is illustrating like I go up and I and I pick berries and I bring them back to my community and I learn about huckleberry and I fill up my basket and I feel good that is a very different experience than going to the store and purchasing a, a flat of blueberries that's a very transactional experience. What we're talking about is transformation and building new memories. So do you, as part of what you teach, do you take, I'm going to say, the, even the younger generation, teenagers, uh, middle school age kids, sixth graders, do, how do you get them involved and say, oh, I didn't even know that. I thought you just went and bought chips. I, that's what I thought you know, food was. I, so I did the communications end of this. So I have a master's degree in strategic communication and I thought I'm going to go straight for the adults because they're the ones I'm going to talk to. Yeah, they're fun, smart enough to listen. Fun fact, you know, it was one of the most profound things was kids were posting pictures of look at my crappy lunch at school. It's like cardboard pizza. It's terrible. And I'm like, it was the parents that are like, oh, we like McDonald's. We like these things. But the kids are already bought into it. They want to be outside. They want to be able to identify berries. They're the ones that don't come in, you know, until the sun's going down when their parents say they have to come inside. It's, it's the kids that really understand and get it and will grow this movement. I mean, they are really our foodies. It's the parents that are, you know, in, in their... Stuck in their ways. Stuck in the rut. We're stuck in our ways. Yeah. yeah. And if you really think about, uh, you know, we're talking about a community that has been historically disempowered. And it's not different from any other community, really. Like, we all have our histories, right? But you're offering a piece of power. You're offering the ability to feel empowered and to take control of your food system and your health system, ultimately. And so people are really hungry for that, especially youth, especially in that time when you just, you're landing in who you are and you're unsure and there's a lot of weirdness happening in your body and then you offer something as awesome as uh here's here's your huckleberry medicine and it the creation story is about a man who had a, a love for his daughter who was really sick and he wanted to heal her do you want to try this medicine and they are all like 
heck yeah, I want some of that medicine. <laughs> Don't we all? Doesn't that sound like something we all really want to try? And yep. they want their classroom outside in the forest. Yeah. They don't want to sit in a classroom. That's the, that's the first thing that we'll tell them when we bring them outside is this is your ancestral Walmart. Everything you need to survive and thrive is right here on your land. Oh, I like that. Welcome to your traditional territory. You know, I, I love that. And I liked where we're going. I've got to have you back because we're out of time now. and we're. Just, uh, I want to like hear more minutes. about all of this. We have been talking this morning with Valerie. Larry Segrist, uh, an educator, nutritionist, and Roma Jean Thomas, a, uh, let's say, community herbalist. Uh, she does a lot of things down there at the Muckleshoot she Tribe, really but you guys are working with Coast Salish people all up and down the area, teaching them more and more about uh, traditional and native herbs and medicines and foods. And, and thank you guys so much for being here. Again, people can find out more about this on Facebook, the Muckleshoot Food Sovereignty Project Facebook page. They can at least connect with you there, right? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. And thank you, thank you guys so thank much you, for being Gary, here. Thank you, Gary, for taking the time out and reaching out to us. I really appreciate it. You lift us up. You oh, really do. Well, thank you for guys for being here. And I appreciate all you do for uh, not just being here and sharing your ideas, but what you're doing with uh, the local folks and hopefully the future, like you ended on the hopeful, uplifting. We're looking forward and going up and out. <laughs> thank you guys for being here. Thanks. I am Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. I know I have. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community. I'm Kate Daniels. The U.S. has been called incarceration nation because we have one of the highest rates of imprisonment in the world, even ahead of some third world countries. I feel we can see it's not been the deterrent that people thought that it would be. What it is is costing us in terms of dollars, but more importantly, it's also costing us in terms of people power, families and communities. So let's meet attorney Joe Maroney, who can help us to get a better understanding of this and guide us through a recent study that calls for a 40% cut in the prison population. Mr. Joseph Marone, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate your availability and giving us, from a legal perspective, some uh uh, ideas and you know reflections on what a, a recent report that was calling for a 40% cut in prison populations should and does mean to us. So for you as an attorney, what's your initial reaction to this? Well, I, I think it's something that, uh, that's called for. Um, there's all kinds of facets right now in the system. Um, obviously, we are overpopulated in the prison system. Um, there becomes a major cost factor uh, on, on the state level, um, and there also may, becomes a major cost factor on the federal level, depending on whether it's a federal state prison. So, so by reducing <laughs> the prison population, I think that is uh, something that economically makes a lot of sense, but then you've got to balance the effects it has on society. Exactly. And so... Uh when we think about society, when the population here is, oh, there could be a release, and I don't know that it would be instantly 40% of the population comes out of prisons, but what is your sense? Does the public feel threatened by this uh, prospect? Well, listen, there's always that perception when you're letting convicted felons out of jail that automatically they're dangerous, and that's not necessarily true. I think you have to do a balance and analyze, you know, who you're letting out. Obviously, you, you start with the category of, you know, first offenders, and and then you start with the, and then you go to with the crime that was committed. I mean, when you when you deal with nonviolent crimes, 
and you deal with first-time offenders, I mean, they're the ones that are probably at the front of the line and more likely to be given the opportunity for a reduced sentence to let up, to let out. And usually the first offenders at least um, are the ones that uh, you can analyze to see whether or not, you know, they're going to, what they call is recidiv- recidivism, which is a convicted, uh, someone who's convicted who is likelihood to, to recommit other crimes. Now, if those individuals obviously show a, a pattern that uh, they're, they're, they're going to lead a law-abiding life, obviously, then they're the ones that you're going to continue to want to stay with. I mean, violent criminals, criminals <laughs> that are repeat offenders, they're the ones that would go on the bottom of the list, the ones that you would, you know, less likely want to let out or at least not want to reduce their sentence. And so we are talking about felony convictions of which there are both violent and nonviolent types, correct? Yeah, listen, you, you get involved with, 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 with drugs and certain, fra- uh, you know, crimes of fraud. They're all felonies versus, you know, you get involved with violence, you know, like assaults, ag assaults, assaults with a weapon, ultimately you get involved with homicides. Um, you know, that, that's a whole different scenario. So, you know, you have to, it's a balance. And, and I think what the system has to do is try to analyze, you know, categorize the, the, the prison population and then, you know, make choices from there. I mean, that, that would make most sense. But, but doing this whole procedure, obviously, I think is very, very smart because it's costing us lots and lots of money, again, on the state and federal level, not only, um, you know, because you would have to not only build more prisons, but the prison itself, remember, we're, we're caring for individuals. You know, they, they have to be fed. We have an obligation to feed them, so they get three meals a day. Yeah, they, they have health issues. And, and inmates with, obviously, longer sentences that are going to live the duration of their life in, in these prisons, they begin to have um, a lot of medical issues, and they need treatment, and they need um, all kinds of medical support, and the cost numbers are, are astronomical. So, you know, that's the whole thought process in, in trying to figure out how to deal with these, these issues. So if we reflect back in time, we really see a, a huge jump in the po- uh, prison population dating back, I think it's around 1980, isn't it so? Yeah, I mean, what happened was, you know, the government started passing these mandatory minimum sentences, especially when it came to, to drugs and certain violence. Um, and, I, you know, crack cocaine uh, became a big issue in our society and these mandatory uh, minimum sentences, five, ten years, sometimes life, for, you know, possessions of, the, of this drug. Um, and, you know, possession was rampant. So obviously, you know, to be, to be caught uh, possessing crack cocaine and putting you in this category, it didn't take much. And obviously you, you, you were limited with choices on a plea bargain and you were given these long sentences. And that's what it also kind of, attributed to this increase in uh, the prison population. And so what we're finding is, yes, these were probably largely drug crimes that occurred. Do you feel that there has been some kind of change then? Um, Or have we really seen an increase? And this could actually just totally get out of hand in terms of people uh, being incarcerated for that offense. Well, I mean, we've seen a change. I know the President Obama enacted, I think it was like 2010, um, uh, the Fair Sentence Act, which um, <laughs> demanitorized a lot of these uh, drug offenses, especially came with crack cocaine, and reduced a lot of sentences, which I think was justified. You know, and, and, and again, you know, you get involved with, with drug offenses, there's a whole litany of issues that kind of surround it. Um, you know, first you talk about 
you know, the, the person is he, you know, obviously is he a drug salesperson or is he a drug user? Well, the flip side of being a drug user is, um, you know, drug use also perpetuates other crimes such as theft, robbery, and so forth, just so they can come up with ways to whatever it takes to get their hands on monies to satisfy their, their addictions. Then, you know, but that in itself, you know, each individual has to be analyzed and, and some people are subject to treatment. And again, treatment is probably, um, you know, works for some people and some people it doesn't. But, you know, not having people in jail and having them go to treatment obviously is probably more cost effective and makes more sense, you know, overall. And I think that's, you know, that's the balance and, and the thought process that goes through all this. Which is critically important. And it it's part of um, it. It feels to me it's part of the, what we're talking about in terms of the cost factor. Yes, there are those, um, what, like hard costs in terms of building the buildings and providing food and care for the inmates. But the fact that they are not part of the population that is contributing uh, to society, having a job, supporting their family, supporting themselves, that's a pretty important fact to be looking at in terms of cost, isn't it? Yeah, listen, you know, you got to analyze the individuals. I mean, some of these people. But the bigger concern is, is to be able, if, if you're going to reduce the prison population, you know, who, who are you letting out? And if, if people have historically have a criminal record, have evidence of, of repeating, you know, various crimes, um, especially when it comes to violence, those, those, those individuals, there's no question, you know, listen, they shouldn't be let out. Um, because historically, most of those people go back and, and you know, they, the likelihood of them committing another crime is, is very high. People, you know, obviously with, with, with addictions or first-time offenders, you know, there's programs, there, there, there's so much out there where I think, you know, they would uh, respond to them uh, in a great way. And I, I think that, you know, when you put them back, you know, let them, you know, have their way back in society, which I think is, is only the rightful thing to do. I mean, I think the bigger concern with, you know, incarcerating people is to keep society free from, from violence and, and from bad people. And, you know, but in the same instance, when you start enacting these laws and you, you kind of, you know, force these long prison terms, um, you know, are you set up to deal with this increase in prison population? And, uh, you know, real, not realizing, you know, you, you start just convicting, 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 and you realize, geez, we don't have enough, enough space for these, uh, for these people. And then you start to realize the cost, and, you know, that's where it gets out of hand. And I think that's why they're taking a hard look at this and trying to reduce the population, which, again, makes sense. And so I think what we need to realize is that there truly is a, a benefit to society in, in all round in terms of not having a high incarceration rate. It's We should not be feeling threatened that uh, these are going to be violent offenders that would be released it are, it's people who have had, I guess, do you call it soft crime? Well, nonviolent starts off, you know, nonviolent drug offenses. Um, you know, when you, you, you have those people and you have, and I think the big word is first-time offenders. I mean, first-time offenders, you know, sometimes people get themselves into a situation and uh, they make a mistake and, and, you know, probably will never do it again. And uh, those persons, I think, have to be looked at. And I think they should be obviously given leniency or an opportunity to, uh, you know, rehabilitate themselves quickly and, and be, you know, stay in society. People that, that commit violence, especially violence that's premeditated, you know, thought out, you get involved with robberies, um, 
whether it's victims, you know, those individuals, obviously, at first offenders, you know, it's a balance, but, uh, you know, a lot of those people that are, are uh, second offenders and repeat offenders, I, I think that's where, you know, prisons are made for, and I think those, those individuals have to remain incarcerated. Now, here's something that I think is a challenge as a person is released from prison is being able to then find gainful employment and therefore be a contributing member of society. We we sometimes seem to have um, a real hard edge about that in terms of hiring someone who has a record on their uh, resume, if you want to call it that. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you as an employer, sometimes you you take a second look and you say, do I really want to put a convicted felon in my employment? But the same instance, it, it becomes a real difficult situation for people, like I said, that are first-time offenders that happen to get themselves into a bad situation that really, really, you know, would probably not do it again. They become tattooed or labeled, and, and, it, and it, it creates a situation where they're not employable and they can't earn any money. And 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 the 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 perpetual problem is well now you got fines to pay you got restitution or whatever your parole may have you have to try to you say geez you you want the person to be functional in society you want them to be able to pay their bills to try to live their life but they can't get a job so they say well if I can't get a job what am I supposed to do and it's it's a terrible cycle in which I think the government has to be more proactive in analyzing you know people that are convicted felons when they get out. Whether you know, a lot of states don't have don't allow expungement. People have this idea with expungement. Well, you know, I can get expunged. You know, like in, in Pennsylvania, I mean, you know, there's there's no expungement for summary offenses. But anything after that, you have to get what's called a governor's pardon, and that's you know nearly impossible. And it takes years. But you know, the, and, and and as long as you have this uh, this felony on on your record, you know, you have to notify your employer. They ask you and. You, know, you virtually sometimes become employable, so I think the government has to somehow intervene and either put uh, em- employers in positions where they, you know, are, are mandated to, to hire these pe- hire people that are convicted felons, or create some kind of expungement policy where, if it's a nonviolent crime or a first-time offender, where they would, after a certain period of time, allow to get this felony taken off their record, and, and I think that's important because then if, if that happens. You know, then that individual can, you know, make themselves productive and, you know, do do important things and, and grow in society rather than going in the reverse. And I feel that that seems to be a critical component of all of this is to have uh, more of a, a an open mind as employers. But we as the public, is there a way that, you know, do we have a role to play here? Do we need to uh, be activists in some way and and really uh, work towards having uh, this changed either with the government or with employers? Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, employers in general, associations, I think they have an obligation either with local government, state government, <laughs> to, to come together and say, hey, listen, you know, we, we should be hiring a lot of these uh, people that, you know, end up being convicted felons for the first time. I mean, have certain rules and regulations or guidelines, but, you know, allow them to, 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 you know, infuse themselves back into society. So, number one, you have to have uh, the ability to earn some kind of income, because without doing that, and being, you know, not having any money, puts put you in a bad spot, because now you have obligations to live up to, and you can't, you can't get out of that hole that you're in. So, I think when, when the employers, the companies, 
you know, and sometimes these major companies, you know, the, the big major companies that, that we all depend on, the Walmarts um, of the world, the, the Starbucks, uh, all these, uh, you know, the, the major companies that we depend on, I think they have to have programs to help uh, help the local uh, governments uh, deal with these issues. And I think you'll see, you'll see an enormous uh, change where you won't see as much repeat offenders in society. Now, obviously, there's going to be a, a tier of the population that just, you know, are, are, are bad people, and, and that's, again, that's why we have the prison system. So, granted, I, I think we've seen that there are, what, like these bad apples that are going to occur, but, you know, thinking in terms of, for for instance, marijuana, which was uh, and is in much of the country still a criminal offense, in Washington State, it it is legalized, and so here's something where someone, you know, just a few years ago, would have been imprisoned. Now, of course, it's not a crime. So what happens actually in that case where someone is sitting in prison right now because of uh, perhaps being caught with marijuana, but now it's not an offense? That's an interesting issue. And, you know, it just goes with with the changing times, you know, um, substance becomes legal. Uh, You know, I mean, you date back to prohibition when it's one point, you know, alcohol was illegal and then it became legal. Um, you know, in this situation, marijuana has evolved and went from, you know, being an illegal drug to something medically was acceptable to now is being legalized as a uh, social uh, um, you know, substance that is, can be legally used. Um, you know, the laws will change, um, you know, whether they decide to do anything retroactively to people that have been convicted for drug possession or marijuana possession um, and allow them to either be released from jail or maybe maybe I, I would I would try to enact laws that obviously would give people who were convicted of, of marijuana possession only and maybe over like they say the last five years an opportunity to get that expunged from the record uh, usually possession of marijuana doesn't doesn't call for jail time at least the first time uh, really where the problem comes in is when you get involved with distribution but now that the, the substance has become legal um, you know that's something that uh, you know, the politicians are going to really have to lobby a lot and come up with uh, policies that are going to help evolve with with the changing times of uh, legal marijuana use. So. Yes. So that that's a, an, an interesting perspective. I wanted to go back to what you were saying uh, in terms of businesses in our communities, in our countries, need to also step up and be supportive of this. I think this might maybe parallel. It's similar, but of course quite different, where there are programs for for veterans. So they've come out of the military. They obviously, in this case, though, they do have some employable skills. There are companies <coughs> stepping forward to hire them. So we need to do that with the prison population. Some may already have a skill from the past, but, you know, some of them might be young enough, they're high school dropouts. What do we do about that kind of population? Um, you know, perhaps there is a continued upfront cost but we should see that in the long run that'll be beneficial for everyone? You're speaking about companies and, and corporations getting involved with programs for the for the uh, convicted felon population? Is that what you're, you're referring to? Yes. Well, yeah, listen, when, when you mentioned they have, they have programs for veterans, you know, veterans kind of have a tag that, you know, they've just served their country and, you know, there's somewhat of a heroic uh, label on them. So, you know, it, it's easy to 
tell companies to put programs together and say, that, hey, we're supporting the veterans. In fact, they want to step out to the public and say, hey, we support the vets because it kind of gives them a, a uh, you know, a, a popular moniker. In this, on the flip side, you know, to get companies to go out to public and say, hey, we have a, a program where we support felons, you know, first-time offenders, we employ them, you know, it's kind of a balance because then you're going to have this part of the public that who, you know, have um, their good fortune haven't been involved in the, in the criminal system and may look down on them. And I, I, I think it takes a, con- a concerted effort uh, politically um, and with, a, a, you know, a large population of these companies have to come together and programs have to be enacted. And I think, these, you know, I don't think the corporations are going to do it on their own because they don't really want to. I think it's going to, it's going to be more of a political effort. It's going to be an enactment by the state. But they're going to have to do something because it is a problem where a lot of these first offenders, when either either they have a conviction, they don't serve any time, but they still have a conviction, or they get out on a short jail sentence, you know, it's very, very difficult for them to find a job. Um, and some of these crimes, again, as I say, um, they may be minor in nature, or again, even if they are felonies, uh, nonviolent crimes, they're not expungible. So they, they remain on your record. And and I've seen, you know, people for the longest time find it very difficult to find jobs. And, you know, nobody really wants that, wants to help. And, and the, again, it starts with the government. The government has to change the laws, has to enact laws to make it easier for these people to deal with it. Yes. And I think that's where we just, as a society, need to have a broader opening in our minds towards this is to not have a broad brushstroke against everyone with a felony conviction is to really be able to take a case-by-case look at this and and realize how can you real do you want this person to virtually rot in prison and we're paying for that or is there a way to use those monies to provide education and integrate them into society yeah listen i agree and a lot of these especially the young people that you know, people, once they're 18, I mean, now they're treated as an adult, 18, 19, 20 years old, and they find themselves, you know, they're immature, they make mistakes, and they get themselves into a situation, and next thing you know, they're they're charged with a crime for whatever reason, their own fault. And, you know, sometimes the it becomes insurmountable to get out of that problem. And, and, and if they had the help and the assistance to rehabilitate, to become employed, inject themselves back into society I think that a lot of those people would do great you know because we've all made mistakes in our, especially as young people and in terms some of it so they are young people they have perhaps been uh, what high school dropouts for instance the prison uh, situation doesn't provide education any longer, or at least it's my understanding in the past that was available and doesn't occur now? No, I mean, there's very limited resources in prisons. They they try to make programs available. They're not the greatest. I don't think there's much uh, focus or, or resources put into it. Um, you know, prison is usually prison. You know, you get incarcerated, and <laughs> at that point, you know, it just becomes a uh, a perpetual time to, to serve your time and, and to hopefully, you know, get paroled out as soon as possible. There, there's not, it doesn't become a, uh, a place where you can change your life for the better. It, it, it's very difficult. And so again, as an attorney, 
seeing it from, uh, I think, a really different perspective, uh, knowing the legal system, uh, if you were able to, you know, kind of have a magic wand, so to speak, and say, this is how we change that piece of it, what would you see happening uh, when money is not even limited? Well, I, I think you have to look at the prison population as a whole, and you have to say to yourself, you know, who can we let out? And And I think you have to put the the right people, the right parole people in there to analyze, you know, each individual inmate or prisoner and say, hey, are these first-time offenders versus are these people repeat offenders? Are they violence, non-violence? Is it what kind of, is it a drug possession versus are these people drug salespeople? And take a look at that and then begin begin to, to weed out the people that obviously come to the top of the list and, and get them back out in society, you know, get them employed, um, give them opportunities to rehabilitate. If they're if they're drug addicts, which is a whole nother problem, you know, I, w- I would spend the monies creating the better facilities that can treat addiction. Because a lot of times facilities, you have to pay out of your own pocket. Families don't have the money. And I think that would solve a lot of it immediately. You know, and then I think you have to kind of revamp the a lot of the laws as far as sentencing um, and give opportunities for a lot of crimes where you would normally call for jail time, maybe probation. And give them, give these individuals opportunities to kind of turn their life around. And then I think you have to, again, you have to lobby a lot of these state and local politicians. They have to change the laws as far as expungement. <laughs> um, uh, getting, if, if you're convicted of a crime, having an opportunity for a period of time to get that taken off your record, um, that has to be enacted. And, you know, at, at that point, uh, if those things are accomplished, I think you'll see you know see a better change. Most uh, you know crime and people get worried. You know you let prisoners out of out of prison. There's going to be more crime in society. That's necessarily true. It's usually the repeat offenders, and I and I, and I think you, those repeat offenders have to be analyzed, and you have to get the, the the capable people in each state that are reviewing the records, the right parole people, and I think with that balance, you know, you'll see a change. And so in your role as an attorney, have you personally then dealt with someone who perhaps has had been a first-time offender, has been incarcerated, but has been able to be let out and is able to get themselves on a good path and have a better better life now? It happens. I mean, you know, it's the individual. You have to have that type of personality to want to overcome, you know, the bad times and, and, you know, obstacles, but not every individual is like that. Sometimes people, when they're, you know, first-time offenders, they find themselves incarcerated. They need the support, you know. They need uh, people to, to, to either uh, to talk to, to work with, um, to help them kind of turn their life around. <laughs> and then, you know, again, they need the opportunity to find themselves back in the community and being productive, and again, some people just have that ability because they're, you know, they will persevere through the bad times. And some people just don't have that in their in their DNA to overcome, you know, the hardships. And sometimes they just kind of swallow up into bad times, and it just becomes worse, and they find themselves into another situation. So it's a balance. You know, that's all I can say. Uh, Well, which is totally a a fair statement. Uh, But I think going back to the point where you said, you know, doing this on a case-by-case basis, that's where we're going to see 
uh, more success and begin to see results. And I think bottom line, it takes each of us to become more informed and maybe become our own uh, kind of lobbyist and, and work to make changes in our society. Uh, I think so. It starts from, from the top to the bottom. I mean, whoever, whoever controls the prison systems, uh, you have to have people that are competent and smart and have these ideas. And then they and they got to hire people in, in the prison system uh, that manage these these prisons and and have ideas on on what we're talking about today. And then you know locally in, in government, um, you know politically, um, the lawmakers have to make adjustments so that uh, you know everything we just talked about can can be dealt with, can be worked out. And you know you, you got to force you got to force business involved too. I mean you got to get. You got to get them involved. You got to get these people employed. You know, and I think if people are employed, you know, and they have an opportunity that, that they'll turn their life around and they'll get themselves on the right path. But if you don't give them this opportunity and you deny them that, it makes it sometimes almost impossible. <laughs> exactly. Well, I certainly do appreciate your uh, being with us, giving us your time, Mr. Marone. It's been most informative. <laughs> And I feel that uh, we have things that we can do and, and get busy. So many thanks for your time and your expertise. Oh, my pleasure. It was great talking to you, and I hope to talk to you in the future. Excellent. Thanks so greatly. And there is the crime report that came out early December of 2016. That link can be found uh, in the podcast section of warm1069.com just look under Sunday mornings look for this interview Joseph Marone and you will find more details including the link for the crime report you can find more details you can find the full report and see how each of us can be more informed and really work and act to make a change, make a difference, and make this a less incarcerated and more productive society.